0: Hello everyone and welcome to the latest installment of For What It's Worth, no idea the episode, have a lot to cover, I'm in Santa Fe, it's cold but sunny, uh, my wife and I have been out looking at vehicles, my Tacoma is no longer mine, uh, and I am driving the van, and we may or may not need a second vehicle, I think we do, but uh, we're trying to figure out what that is, so we've been looking at cars, so it's always an adventure, do we buy an old beater for a couple grand and then put money in it very slowly over the years, or do we lease something decent, that, uh, we don't have to put any money into in case there's any repairs or anything like that. And, uh, you know, what do we do? We've looked at Jeep. We've looked at Subaru. We looked at Hyundai. We looked at Toyota. We looked at something else. That's my heat kicking in, in case you can hear that. Uh, it's about 40 degrees right here. So it's not, it's not too bad. But anyway, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, my Tacoma went to a great, owner, a guy here in town who has uh, two kids, so appreciative. He's going to hopefully have that car forever. Um, We didn't really need it anymore with the van because that's taken over for our road trip vehicle. But before we get into this uh, for what it's worth, uh, we've got a weekly hero. And this week's hero, I only know his first name. And his first name is Ignacio. And last week, I was in Tucson, Arizona, and my wife, I had dropped my wife off at the Gem Fair. She spent her first week at the Gem Fair buying and, and researching materials for her jewelry business. It was the first time we'd ever been to the Gem Fair. turns out we know a ton of people who've been many, 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 many times in the past. It's a very interesting event. I do like southern Arizona. Uh, so I dropped her off, and I needed to get some work done. So I saw that there was a mountain just west of downtown Tucson that had a giant uh, A on the top of it for Arizona, the university and then there was a little like road that snaked all the way up to the top and there were little like kiosks picnic tables at the top and I thought oh that'll be perfect and I got about halfway up and the gate was closed I was too early in the morning so I thought it was permanently closed and so I there was a little parking lot there I backed into a parking space there's hardly anybody there and I start doing recordings and all of a sudden I hear rustling in the bushes behind the van never a good sign when you're in a parking lot by the way especially in a van because the van always has that creep factor where it's like, oh, maybe the guy in the van is pantless. Like, you just don't know. And um, anytime you hear rustling in the bushes near a parking lot, you know there's probably some shenanigans going on. So, of course, I loaded up my, uh, you know, my Laws rocket so that I could vaporize whoever it was behind the van. And out came Ignacio. And Ignacio is a, is a Mexican, a Mexican guy. And we immediately started speaking in Spanish. And he was the most positive, energetic interesting guy i've run into in quite a while and he looked at me and the very first thing that came out of his mouth outside of like hey mucho gusto how's it going was this is my place este lugar es mio basically he probably said it more eloquently than i did but what he meant was he was cleaning up the trash in the parking lot because he said the city workers were lazy and all they did was replace trash bags in the trash can but nobody cleaned up the garbage that people were throwing in the parking lot glass bottles trash you know all kinds of garbage all around this beautiful saguaro infested parking lot and he said I know that this place is mine and I live on the other side of the mountain in an apartment and I hike over every morning and I clean up this parking lot because if I do this and I take care of this I will make the world a better place and I will be a better human being and then his final point for him was and I really hope this helps me get into heaven so you can take the religion part and toss it if you if you want to, and just take the first two thirds of that equation. And I thought, how refreshing is this? Like there were people coming in and out of that parking lot day all day long who were not paying any attention. They're getting out, they're doing their power hike, and they're getting back in. Or like me, I pulled up and was doing you know making a YouTube film. I didn't clean up the parking lot. And he said, look, if you and I have good hearts and we do the right thing and we think about other people, we're going to leave the world a better place. And I was like. Um, Are you running for president by any chance? Are you maybe an independent or libertarian? Are you on the Democratic ticket? Are you on the Republican ticket? Is there any possible way that, even though you don't speak English, can I vote for you as president because you are clearly an advanced human being? So Ignacio, whoever you are, whatever your last name is, uh, it was great meeting you. I'm sure you're never gonna hear this, but I am putting a word out because I think you're a stand-up guy. Okay, moving on, we're gonna hit politics here on the first point, just because, just to get it out of the way. And I'm gonna repeat a couple of things I've said many times before. Number one, there is not a single thing Donald Trump has done or said that is surprising because we had a 40 year public track record to cull before he became president. And so you knew what kind of person we were electing. So the racism, the anti-Semitism, the bigot- bigotry, the hatred, the lies, we all knew that. He, 40 years of public track record. This, the surprising thing to me, is in the past couple in the past couple of weeks, I've spoken to several Trump supporting friends, and again, I'm still friends with these people. I'm not going to not be friends because they're supporting a different political uh, candidate. Although at times it is trying because the thing that's been happening lately is as Trump Trump digs himself deeper and deeper and deeper into the abyss, into the mess, and the Republicans are contradicting themselves and bending over backwards and you know making fools of themselves to cover for him. He keeps opening his mouth and then contradicting the republicans and himself and everything else so you know it's kind of a disaster so when i talk to trump friends about him they refuse to engage in actually talking about what trump has done or said this is consistent across the board every single person i know that supports trump the first time you mention trump the first thing they do is either reference hillary clinton or barack obama that's it their only play is to deflect and try to blame everything that Trump is doing and saying on the on the Democrats or on, in particular, Hillary and Barack. Even though we're three and a half years past this entire thing, that's their only Trump, their only card that they play is well, Obama was supposed to make the world perfect. And you're like, oh, good grief. So, you know, and then I basically end the conversation because why would you want to talk to people that have no ability to have rational thought or look at math, science, truth, or fact? And again, I have some really close friends and some close family members who are full-on, you know, Trumpers. So it's um, it can be challenging, but obviously... And the last thing I'm going to say about politics is we completely and utterly deserve everything that is about to happen to us. We deserve all of it because we elected these people, not just Trump. All of the people that we have have created this mess and now we are going to pay the piper for their indiscretions. And it is going to get bad. And the wheels are going to come off this train in a way that our country literally has never seen. My advice is to buy some canned food and make sure you have a good water, water source. Okay, moving forward. And we are going to go on the f- opposite flip side here. We had our Ignacio was our hero. We had a little politics Is point number one. Point number two is the complete reversal, which is a love. I want to talk about love. And I think love is a word that gets tossed around, especially because it was Valentine's Day. I do not celebrate Valentine's Day. I refuse to I- admit that that is a holiday. I think it's a scam. I'm not a big Halloween fan. I'm not a big—there's uh, a lot of holidays that I think are kind of scams, Valentine's Day being one of them. Love is a I- very interesting thing. And I think it gets tossed around. It's on Hallmark cards. It's on, you know, every online, every, every social media channel. There's all these little funky little things about love, and most of it is, is total BS having been with the same woman for a long, long time, and knowing after 30 minutes after meeting her, she was the one I was gonna marry, which is another story that I'll tell at some point. um, I realized, okay, this is the one. And I think what love is, is, is wanting to do every single thing you can for someone else with total abandonment of your greater good. Okay, So it's sacrificing everything that would provide you with a greater good to give to someone else and combined with knowing crazy. So my wife in her own specific and unique ways is entirely crazy. And for those of you who know her, you will know that I am not exaggerating. And so she's got flaws. I have major flaws. And it's to look at those flaws and embrace them Instead of going, God, that really drives me insane. And she does a lot of stuff that drives me insane. But I look at those eyes when she's in the middle of doing it, and I see kind of the her, her mentality, and I think I can't not I can't hate this. Right? That's who it is. That's who she is. And I'm and I have a million flaws, so I'm a train wreck to be around most of the time. I know that. Um, she puts up with way more with me than I put up with her, and. Um, you know I'm a, I'm a mess. And so love is putting all that aside and still wanting to do every single thing you can for this other person. And when you see it, it's it's a really phenomenal thing. Um, and those little moments where you're both feeling it at the same time are what allows you to continue to be together year after year after year. Because I personally, and this will probably get me in trouble, I don't think humans were meant to marry. I think that is a modern convention that for most people is a, is a prison, not a country club. And I think most, the vast majority of human beings were not designed to be with one person for the rest of their life, but a very small percentage are. And I think I'm lucky enough to where I think, you know, I, I found someone who uh, kind of feels the same way. So anyway. All right, the next point, we're moving on to point number three. And this is about grinding with a camera, <clears throat> plugging, grinding an inch at a time. Uh, this, so I was talking to my friend Frank, and Frank's in L.A., and Frank is what I would call a quiet photographer. Um, he's a relatively big physical guy, but he makes pictures that are very subtle and very quiet and a lot of things that people would walk right by. And he's, 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 he's a, a tenacious photographer in the sense that I think photography dominates much of his waking life. It, it's really a big part of who he is. He thinks about it. He's knowledgeable. He studies it. He researches it. He tests. He's 100% into it. I would say way more than even me. And so we were talking the other day on the phone and we were talking about projects and about fame and about this and that. And I said to him in a, in a positive way that I felt that he was a grinder of somebody who was daily out there grinding for pictures. And this is a very peculiar way of working. And I think a lot of consumers and a lot of prosumers would fall into this, but far less pros because there's no sense of commercialism. At least when the pictures are being made, it isn't about commercialism. It's about obsession. And I think it's a great lesson. I think a lot of pros start out as grinders. And then the obsession switches from obsession to commercial. And that's why when people are saying to me, oh, I want to be a professional photographer, I'm like, mm, maybe you do, maybe you don't. Because when you start to do it for a living and it's commercial, it changes everything. And so I have a, a tremendous appreciation for grinders. I think that there are a lot of grinders out there who are totally unknown You might find an image of theirs on Flickr, you might find something in print, you might find an obscure one at a gallery, whatever. But they're not people who are on social all day long promoting themselves commercially. They're just out carving notches, right? It's those people who maybe end up at the end of every year with 10 images that are like, okay, here's a representative of my entire year. And so if you're a grinder, man, give yourself a pat on the back. I think it's a great way of being a photographer I think the less commercialism you have, the better off you're going to be and probably the more fun you're going to have. So I think that is a... That's the point I wanted to make is that um, grinding is is perfectly okay. Okay, so we had Ignacio as the hero. We had love as the first point. We had um, grinding as the third point, And the fourth point I want to talk about just popped up on my radar in, uh, in Tucson last week. So I stayed with... Child, we stayed with childhood friends of mine from when I was in elementary school and middle school, and they had two kids who were older. One was my sister's age, basically, and one was my brother's age, and their son and my brother were like besties, and they raced motorcycles and bicycles and everything, and they were you know together all the time, but I only knew these people, the parents, as I, I was a kid and so I didn't really hang out with them because they're parents and I'm a kid and I had other friends and what we were all we were, I was within a half mile of, on my bicycle of their house. So we were all very close. The families would hang out. My mom and, and the mom uh, and uh, the wife on that side would travel together. They did tra- overseas travel and stuff. and so we were, we were buds. But the thing is I didn't really know their history. So we get there, and they're so kind and so nice and so generous with us, and we're sitting around talking, and they weren't feeling well, so we didn't get to spend a whole lot of time with them. And we're talking, and, and I kind of like started to realize that I didn't really know much about them. He had a military flying career. He was a naval aviator. Then he went on to fly for commercial airlines in America. Then he ended up in the Middle East. I had no idea. Um, no idea. And then he said something to me that was really interesting. And I realized, God, we are making such a monumental mistake here in the country, but I'll get to that in a second. He said to me, we're talking about politics, not anything super deep, just kind of superficial. And he said, I was a Republican for 60 years. And then Trump came along and I looked at Trump and I said, he has no virtue and no civility. I can't vote for him. So, And that's all he said. And I was like, holy cow i go that the fact that you saw that admitted it realized that even though he had a republican label around his neck he was never a republican and he never will be he just identified with the party because he knew he could take it over and my friend saw through that and said i can't do it i in good conscience i cannot vote for this guy and i said to him i go you are in the 1% of people who have a, a, the reality the logistics the ability to think rationally and put aside your partisanship to make a, a logical decision. Now that sh- seems like that would be everybody, but it's not. It's this tiny percentage of people that can do that. So later that night, my wife and I walked down the street to a Mexican restaurant, and this is in what I would call a retirement community. It's an area where there's a lot of snowbirds, people that come down to spend the winters in, in Tucson. And we go into this restaurant and there must be 150 or 200, what I would call elderly, more elderly people eating food. And I'm, and I'm an eavesdro- eavesdropper because I have a journal and I'm always writing down over her conversation. And I'm listening to the conversations of the people around me. And I realized, and I've known this for my whole life, but the folks who are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s are an incredible resource of knowledge and history that we younger folks simply do not have. We don't have the age and the experience to have what they do. And I look at millennials coming in. I look at my nephews, my nieces. And I think it is such a monumental mistake for us to isolate the elderly in the country in places like, you know, Kings Point in Florida, South Florida, obviously a big retirement community, Southern Arizona, Southern Texas. And the elderly go off into these communities and they hang out with each other. But what we're not doing is connecting them with millennials. This should be a completely reversed. There should be living arrangements where the elderly and the millennials and everybody else that comes along after the millennials, the kids, are able to interact because they can both learn from each other in monumental ways. And I kind of get the feeling that a lot of younger folks think that there's nothing there for them on the other end of the age spectrum, which makes them look even more moronic than they are, than we all are as kids. You know, as kids, we all think we know everything. Even as like in college, I thought I knew things. I was a complete idiot. Even after I graduated from college, I thought I knew how to be a photographer. I didn't know anything. Um, And I think we need to connect those two groups of people. I think the world would be a better place. I think we would be a better society. I think we'd be more productive. I think we would be smarter, more efficient. And yet what do we do? We build retirement communities and we stick elderly people there and basically ignore them. And that sucks. So anything you can do about that, if you could fix that by Tuesday, it'd be great. Okay, moving on, point number five. um, I had a quick dream about Casey Neistat. And uh, I was on a production shoot with Casey Neistat for some reason. And all they had to eat was cake and pastry. And I was so sick, I almost woke up and threw up in bed. I just wanted to say that. I don't know him. I've never met him, never spoken to him. I don't know why I dreamed about being on a production shoot with him. And all he was eating was cake and pastry, and I it, three meals a day. And after like the third day, I'm like, I can't handle it. And I woke up. I woke myself up because it had turned into a nightmare. And I kind of felt like I was going to puke in bed. So luckily, I missed that. I didn't do it. Okay, moving on to a little bit of athletics here. And uh, point number, this could be 0. 0.5, 0. 6. I don't care. It could be 5.5. 5. Let's do 5.5. 5. I want to talk about the dirty Kansas. The Dirty Kansas is a 200-mile gravel bike race that happens in Kansas in the Flint Hills every year, every summer, I believe it is. And um, I probably am never going to ride the Kansas. Um, I did that 55-mile ride last week, and I took 24 hours to recover. So 200 miles is probably not in my wheelhouse. However, I kind of feel like it would be fun to give it a shot if I was able to train. I have a 100-mile ride coming up in September here in New Mexico. I think I'm going to try to do that with my brother, it's the one up in uh, Angel Fire, uh, Red River, kind of Red River Century or Loop or Creative Loop or something like that. My brother's done it many times. I've never done it, um, but 100 miles is doable for me. I could, if I took my time, I could do that. And if I trained, I could definitely do it. 200 on gravel, in the wind, in extreme weather, in heat, with a lot of people racing for 200 miles, it would be a challenge, but totally something I would be willing to give give a try. But I'm having bike lust. And, and what I'll tell you is the bike lust is very similar, I think, for many of you with camera lust. Like you have a complete system that will do more than you could ever possibly use it for. And yet part your right eye goes wall-eyed and it starts looking at some other camera to the right. And you're like, oh, my God, but if I just had that one. So recently I was on the Cannondale site and I was on the Jameis site and I was on the Niner site. Um, And I was like, why am I doing this? And so the little voice on my shoulder was like, you're an idiot. You don't need this. You had a chocolate donut yesterday. You had a tequila shot yesterday. There is no way in hell you're ever going to ride 200 miles on a bike unless the world has ended and your car is on fire and you're trying to get away from like masked people who want to eat your intestines. So it's never going to happen. And so I'm still lusting. I'm not going to buy another bike because I have a great bike, but I just wanted to admit it that I too lust after things uh that I don't need. And by the way, in my own defense, the chocolate donut was a trade-off that I had to make for getting free Wi-Fi. So, I bought a chocolate donut, I ate it, I immediately felt like shit, but I did get free Wi-Fi and I was able to upload a YouTube film. The tequila shot was just pure indulgence. It was um it was there. I was like, I'm not drinking that, and then uh, suddenly I tasted, you know, lime in my mouth cuz I had shot, you know, slammed the tequila shot. Okay. Moving on. Speaking of the powdered donut, the chocolate donut this was something that happened to me that I wanted to mention because um, I am uh, probably a lot like you in the sense that I do judge people from time to time without taking, taking the time to actually understand who they are. So I go in to get my chocolate donut to get my free Wi-Fi, and I go in, and there are two men sitting in this donut shop, both carrying open carry sidearms. One was like a, a, a Glock, and the other was, a, I think, a, an HK45 on their hips. And you know, it's weird if you live in, this was in an open carry state. So if you're not living in an open carry state, and even if you are, if you're not familiar with firearms, it can be a little weird to look over at two guys, two civilians in a coffee shop or donut shop with a, with a firearm. Now why they're carrying these firearms? I don't know. I didn't ask. I don't personally, I don't care. So I go over and I'm setting up my laptop and I'm, I'm I'm listening to these guys. And in my head, based on their girth, their age, their clothing and everything, I'm categorizing them, right? Without ever hearing them speak uh, or talking to them, I'm judging them. And that's not something that we should do and not something that I should do because what happened next w- was, was hysterical. So I'm looking at these guys and in my head, I've already summed them up. I'm like, gun nuts, out of shape, you know, uh, rednecks, basically. And then I start listening to their conversation. And what are they talking about? They're talking about Shakespeare. Shakespeare. And they're talking. They're comparing plays and acts and books and writing of Shakespeare. And they're going back and forth. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And I'm listening to this conversation. And I'm like, I don't really know anyone who could have this conversation at this level. Like, I, how did this happen? It doesn't blend with the tech nine on your hip, you know, to have like be, t- be in this Shakespeare thing. And then the bigger one starts talking about bike tires. And he's like, you know, I need something that works on gravel. I need this, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And I said, dude, Schwalbe Marathon plus tour. And I said, I'm sorry to interrupt you guys, but blah, blah, blah. And they spun towards me. and We started talking about bikes and tires. And then for the next like half an hour, we had really good conversation about all kinds of topics. And in my back of my head, that little voice was like, you're an idiot. You judged them. You categorize it. My wife tells me I do this all the time. And it's probably true. She's saying it, you know. She does lie like pathologically. Not really. So she's probably accurate, and I probably do it all the time. And I shouldn't do it, and it bothers me. So if you're doing it, you should stop too, because it's probably bothering you too. But anyway, I was so laughing inside... Because I thought, man, I could not have been more wrong about these guys. And they were smart. They were funny. They were interesting. They had interesting lives. One guy was probably three bills. He's probably 300 pounds. The guy was talking about cycling. And I was like, dude, you are going to get on this bike, and you're going to feel so good in such a short amount of time. And I gave him tips about where to ride, making sure the wind was at your back. Wind was at your back on the way home. You know, if you can always ride into a headwind on the way out, that's better because when you turn around, you've got a tailwind. It makes you feel amazing as the, the opposite situation is horrible where you're like trucking for the first 30 miles and you turn around and you know, there's a major headwind and you go, oh, my God, what have I done? So we had a great conversation. This point was really about judging and not doing that on a regular basis. Okay, moving on, I've got a couple more points. Uh, the, the next one is these are going to be short and then I'm going to try to think of a story to tell you about something that happened in the field that would be interesting or funny or pathetic because I've had a lot of that happen. There was the time the bird crapped on me and I didn't know and it was on my strap. I can talk about that. Or, And that was during an assignment. But let me get to these other points first. Point seven or eight is I've finally been, I've been using the van a lot. And I took a, my first trip in the van where I really utilized the van to work. Now, this is not a van life post. I'm not trying to sell you anything. I'm not trying to sell you a lifestyle. It is f- living in a van and I'm not living in it. I was temporarily utilizing it and I will live in it from time to time for short short periods of time, but I'm never gonna go on the road fully with with the van. That's not why I bought it. But all I can say is it works. The Promaster is really easy to drive. It is so much, it's so nimble for a vehicle that tall and that size, even in wind, it's great. It's super simple to drive. It's far more economical than, than I imagined it would be. And then once I get where I'm going and I spin that driver's seat around and I pull out the desk under the sleeping platform, and I've got my workstations going, I've got the music going, I have my solar lights going. It is fantastic. It's, it's comfortable, it's easy, and the Wayfarer kit inside, which is the company up in Colorado Springs, the Wayfarer kit is awesome. It is so basic, and so simple, but it's beautiful looking. And every time I open the sliding door, whoever sees it, wherever I am, or I open the back doors, people go, oh my God, that is the coolest thing I have ever seen. Everybody wants one of these vans. So it is definitely, if you're on the fence about a van, I would not go all in and move into your van and go full-time living in a van right off the bat. I think a lot of people do that thinking they're going to be YouTube stars. Um, and a few become the YouTube stars, most people end up in sad in Walmart parking lots with like a 40 ounce beer in their hand. And, um, and you know making really questionable decisions and uh and maybe pantless we should throw that in. So anyway, I'm going to do some posts about the van coming up here and about sort of the things that it has allowed me to do that I think are interesting. The van itself is not the story. The story is what the van allows you to do in your life. That's what you want to get um that that you want to really focus on. And and the whole van life stuff is a scam, we all know that. So forget about it. Okay, the second to last point is that, uh, point number eight or nine, is Brad Pitt has been in the news a lot lately, and um, I don't know him. I've never met him. I don't know anybody that knows him, I don't think, Um, but back in the day, when I moved to California in 1996, I had long hair, and um, I kind of look like him a little bit, at least I used to, and I had long hair during the time that he was making a movie. I think it was Legends of the Fall where he had long hair. Now, I'm living in Southern California. I kind of look like him, and I have long hair. And this was my moment of what it would be like to be famous because it was terrifying. And this is funny more than anything else, but terrifying. So when you're in Southern California, people are on the lookout for celebrities all the time, no matter where you go. If you look remotely like anyone, you will get looks, panicked looks, crazed looks, People running after you, people trying to talk to you, people bending over backwards to help you because they think you're someone famous. It is the strangest thing you can possibly imagine. Now, I don't like attention. I don't like people looking at me. I don't like people talking about me. I'd never wanna be the center of attention. That is not my thing. I wanna be under the radar. I have a dream, I'm not joking. I have a reoccurring dream where I'm on my back and a clear plastic film of some sort from space comes down and covers my body And it eliminates my existence on the planet. I'm still here and I'm alive, but no one who knows me right now knows me in the dream. And no one sees me or interacts with me ever again. That's the reoccurring dream I have. So that tells you, so I'm never going to be cut out to be a celebrity. But all of a sudden, I'm walking down the street in Southern California, and I see the reaction on people's faces. And all of a sudden, one person thinks that I am him. And the insanity begins, and I'm like, I got to get out of here. This is not cool. So I go to Texas. I'm with my dad in a cafe in Central Texas, and I notice the waitress is. And this is a very busy restaurant uh, that's known for serving pie, and it's busy. There's probably 50 people in the room that we're in. I'm with my father, and I notice the waitress is acting really funny, and I she leaves, and I said to my dad, We got to get out of here. And he's like, what are you talking about? I go, the waitress is going to lose it. She thinks I'm, I'm Brad Pitt. And he, my father thinks this is hysterical. So I look to my left all the way down the restaurant. The waitress has gone into the kitchen, and she has gathered the kitchen staff, and she's pointing at me. And the kitchen staff is all gathered behind her. And I said to my dad, we got to get out of here. we got to get out of here. And he's like, no, 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 this is too good. This is too good. So she comes back over to the table, and she goes, you're him. And I said, no, I'm not. And she goes, you're the guy. You're him. And I said, ma'am, I don't know who you think I am, but I'm not him. And my dad goes, yep, it's him. It's him. And she starts freaking out. And my dad goes, he's a kung fu star. You've seen him on TV. And now he's playing into it. And I'm like, dad, this is going to go sideways in ways that you have never imagined. She starts wailing crying, wailing, and hands me her notepad and says, will you please sign this? Now the restaurant has stopped. Everyone in the room is looking at me. I'm sweating profusely. I said, ma'am, I am not who you think I am. The shrieks and wails and sobbing elevate. I go, give me the notepad. And so I literally fake sign Brad Pitt on a notepad and immediately flee the restaurant. And my dad was like, whoa, that went sideways. I said, yeah, that's how crazy people are. But it gets better. One more quick story. This was a couple years after. I'm in Santa Fe. I'm walking down the street, downtown. It's summer. There's tourists. And a, an a enormous Ford Econoline van drives by. That's one of those with like five rows. It's packed full of people. God knows where they're from. Some flatland, backwater somewhere. And I hear a woman in the passenger seat. I look up. She's looking at me. And she goes, it's him. And I go, I got to go. And I, and I run. And I cut behind the van. I run across the street. Now I'm running blindly through downtown Santa Fe looking for a place to hide. I'm not joking. I hear the van accelerate. And it's going block by block hunting me. And I hear the screaming of the people. And it's whoosh, the engines going around and around. There used to be a hotel downtown that was abandoned, kind of hadn't been redeveloped yet, that had been, the planning had been in place, and now it's the Drury, it's been it's been totally revamped, it's a big hotel downtown Santa Fe. But back then, there was a metal fence around it, and it was, there was no one there, so it was abandoned. So I, in my infinite wisdom, I'm like, I'm going over that fence, and there's a giant tree, and I'm going to hide behind the tree. So I catapult over this fence, I go behind the tree, and the van, sure enough, comes by slowly, everyone's talking, oh my god, it's Brad Pitt, he's here, he's walking, And I'm literally on my hands and knees hiding behind a tree behind an abandoned hotel in Santa Fe because of this guy, this goddamn actor and his fame. Unbeknownst to me, across the street is a photographer I know who watches me run down the street. That's what catches his eye. He sees me catapult the fence and hide behind the tree. He watches the van go by. And then he yells at me, Melner what the hell are you doing? And I have to stand up. I was like busted, embarrassed. I go, I'm hiding from that van of people because they thought I was Brad Pitt. So how these people do this on a daily basis, and his would have to be astronomically beyond anything I've ever, he, I don't know how at that level you go anywhere. And he seems, and again, it could be a total fraud or fake, fake, whatever. He seems like a pretty normal guy, Of all the celebrities out there, he seems like he's, you know, relatively kind of normal dude. So anyway, I don't know how they deal with it. It just would be horrifying to have that on a regular basis. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, Milner, you're now a YouTube darling. It's inevitable. And yeah, probably. You're right. I'll probably be, you know, the hard part for me will be hiding all the money. So anyway, if you have any suggestions, shell companies offshore, I'm sure Mitch and, and Lindsay have, have suggestions about that amongst many other politicians in our, in our country. Just ask Mossack Fonseca or the Panama Papers or the Paradise Papers. I need to learn how to hide my money. We'll talk about that another week. The last point I want to make before I tell a story is I, wanted to, I got a really good email from someone that had a quote from Dorothea Lang. And it was asking about, it was talking, in essence, what her quote was, that the, the, what you find in its native element is the best. Instead of manipulating, changing, whatever you find in its unique, in its native form is the best. And the, the person who wrote me was asking me what I thought about manipulation in photography. And has it been a good thing or a bad thing? Has it eroded anything, et cetera? And my short answer is, um, Obviously, it's changed a lot. So manipulation, Photoshop, et cetera, this goes way, way back to the, to the beginnings of, of the ability to li- manipulate photographs on the computer. It immediately had a detrimental effect that we still feel today. And now it's past the point of ever coming back. Um, you know, people have no faith in what they're seeing We've obviously talked many times about post-truth culture and society where people just, you know, they invent a narrative of how they want to live their life. And then they, anything that, that doesn't follow that narrative, they say, oh, it's fake or it's not real or whatever. And the same thing applies to photography. And I'll tell you when this began. It began from the day that a photographer could sit down and manipulate an image. That's how fast it did. We, the last people who should have ever been left in charge of this are the photographers themselves. So you have the O.J. Simpson cover in the news magazine, you have the National Geographic moving the pyramids, you have Texas Monthly putting Ann Richards head on someone else's body. It goes on and on and on and on this has happened. And what it did is it destroyed the public's belief in that a photograph was a representation of reality. And so we will never get that back. It's gone. I don't think um, I think photographers are their own worst enemy. And I'll tell you, I was in the offices of a very, very, very famous magazine once about 10 years ago. And the magazine, maybe even longer, maybe 12 12 years ago, Um, this is the holy grail of of magazine photography, if you, to a lot of people, it will remain nameless. And at the time, they were finally transitioning their photographers from film to digital. And the day that I was in their offices, I walked by one of their long, long, long time staff photographers who was still editing transparencies. And we had known each other for a while. And she looked up at me and she goes, I'm the last one. I'm the last one shooting film. And I said, good for you. You know, you've done it. You know what it is. Um, Easy to archive, easy to edit, blah, blah, blah. And she was sitting there going through hundreds of rolls of transparency. So we go in the other room, and they're talking about, like, how they're trying to archive, which was a complete disaster. They were going down an archiving road that was so I was so 100% positive would blow up and backfire on them, which it did. But obviously, I don't work for them, and I was like a peon, so they were never going to take my advice. But I was like, holy cow, you guys are making so many bad decisions about your archive. Uh, but the other thing was, they were I went into a meeting with like photo editor and a couple other photographers and somebody else, and then somebody else from Blurb. I don't remember who was all there. And the primary concern they had with digital was what it would do to the mindset of the photographers. They did not want the photographers to be able to see their work at the end of every day because their egos were so big that they would sit up all night, every night, manipulating their imagery because they were super competitive and super egotistical and they were trying to figure out ways to eliminate this. So the plan that they had come up with, I have no idea if they ever implemented this or what happened was the photographers were going into the field with digital cameras and a massive stack of of flashcards and hard drives but no laptops, no way of viewing the images. Images, And then they would strictly download straight to these laptops and they would FedEx the laptop, not laptops, I'm sorry, hard drives. They would FedEx the hard drives back to the offices every single time they could get to some place where they could send drives out because they were that worried about what it would do to the photographers. I think that is the tip of the iceberg. I mean, I've seen How many images do I see now that are so manipulated with HDR and just people getting into that micro DNA level, going into children's portraits and sharpening like the retinas and just crazy, stupid stuff. Um, We can't control ourselves. We never have. When I see photographs where light is doing things that it cannot physically do in the natural world, I just stop looking at the portfolio. I just tell the photographer, look, this is far, far, far too heavy, heavily manipulated. There's nothing interesting about this. Nothing in the world looks like this. Light doesn't behave this way. You know, stop. Just go back. And people say, well, you could do all this stuff in the darkroom. You could, but you needed a freaking PhD in darkroom studies to even get remotely close to what you can do on the computer. You know, you have the Jerry Yulesmans of the world who are incredible in the darkroom. But, you know, I know one Jerry Yulesman. Um, Jeff Dunas is an unbelievable printer in the darkroom. But Jeff's also an amazing uh a digital printer as well but and what he can do digitally i'm sure is exponentially beyond what he could ever do in the in the physical darkroom. even though he was a what i would call a master printer you know anybody who makes their own chemistry and like you know i've had conversations with jeff where 20 minutes in i just had to say dude i have no idea what you're talking about so that is that is it okay That was 36 minutes, but I want to end this with a photo story. I'm trying to do every one of these now with a story that's something that happened to me back in the day. Um, God, things from Guatemala are coming into mind. But I think I want to do one where uh, this happened while I was an intern at the newspaper in Phoenix in 1993. So as an intern, you don't know what your day is going to be like. It could be good. It could be bad. It could be ugly. You're gonna. You might shoot a funeral in the morning and a water main leak in the afternoon, and then a football game at night, and then a basketball professional basketball game with the strobes in the arena. You don't know; it's just chaos, and that's that's a good thing because you're trying to you're learning trial by fire. You're in the field; you sink or swim. You learn, improvise, adapt, overcome, or you're not going to be in the business very long. So, I was very fortunate. There were supportive photographers. I got good assignments. They took care of me. Blah blah blah. But one of these days, late in the day, and I worked. I think from. 3 p.m. to 11 and if if and the deadline deadline daily deadline was like 7 or 7:30, and if you didn't have your images in by 7 or 7:30, unless a ufo landed on the newspaper building if something happened after about eight o'clock at night it was really difficult to get it in the paper so the ufo landing yes they would have stopped the presses and made that in so you know it's late late in the afternoon late in the evening and all of a sudden we get a call across the scanner that there is a hostage situation With a guy who's holed up with a gun and he's they they have hostages. That's not funny, but the story is funny. So I'm like, I don't know what to do. I've never covered a hostage situation, and photographers are like, you know, take this, take a 600, take a 400, take a 300, take a 100 to 400. Take vaseline on your lens. You know, everyone's like firing all this stuff at you. Half of them are good suggestions, and the others are to see if you'll actually be dumb enough to to take the advice. So someone I don't remember who it is says to me, oh you got to take the 300 f2 okay now i'm an, at this point i'm a canon shooter i think i was a canon shooter i was nikon when i started the internship but i think i was canon by the end of it maybe i was still shooting nikon because the paper had a 300 mm f2 not a 2.8 the 300 2.8 is sort of the quintessentially quintessential long lens for newspaper photographers a 300 2.8 you can still handhold it the 302 is a beast the front element is the size of a dinner plate it is all glass and metal. It must weigh 30 pounds, right? And the depth of field is like the size of a piece of paper. But if you're shooting a hostage situation and it's dark, maybe you need the 302. I don't know who told me to carry this, but it was a terrible piece of advice. So we get to the hostage situation and the police reporter is there. He's this older guy who I absolutely loved. He ate like fettuccine Alfredo every single day. He was the, And he smoked just constantly. He was the most unhealthy-looking human being I've ever seen in my life, but he was a kick-ass crime reporter. People respected him. Law enforcement respected him. They knew him. He was so helpful and so nice to me. I loved working with him. I don't remember his name. And God, I hope he got on a diet and quit smoking. We get to this thing and the police have this area cordoned off where the press can go. And I'm in here and I'm holding this thing. And it's so heavy that it's digging into my shoulder on the monopod. And it's so heavy, I can't use any of my other equipment, and I'm scared to put it down because it's so expensive and so big. If something happens to it, I'm going to get killed. So I'm like, eh, I don't know what to do. And I go to the, go to the police reporter, and I'm like, Will you hold my lens, which is really unprofessional. And I think he said yes, or n- I don't remember. Maybe he said yes, maybe he said no. Anyway, I'm floundering around. I'm not shooting. So now the police force has their SWAT team out, and there's a sniper who has this guy in the crosshairs, right? And this guy's like moving back and forth in front of a window or something, like very movie-esque. And the police have him, but they're negotiators there and they're trying to talk the guy down. And so the police have this area cordoned off and the PIO, like the public information officer and the head cop is there. And they're like kind of, kind of quietly threatening us with the media. And he's like, look, the police tape is here. Do not, and I repeat, do not go underneath that police tape. And of course, like when the cops are telling you that and they're pissed, and there's a hostage thing happening, you don't want to irritate them. And certainly if there's a line of police tape, you don't want to go under the police tape, right? Looks bad, You're, you know, they just specifically told you not to do this. And so I happen to be standing right by the police tape. I'm not under it, but I'm right next to it, along with a lot of other people. But I seem to be just a teeny bit further ahead of anyone else. And I'm like, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? I got to get a picture. They're going to get mad at me. I'm not going to make it. I'm, they're going to cut my internship. I'm going to end up in the gutter. I'll be in the van. I'll be sleeping in the Salt River Basin. Uh, my whole life's going to unravel and I'm, all the pressure and all the conversations in your head. And I'm standing there and someone on the police force goes underneath the police tape. It catches on their backpack or something and they walk forward away from me and the police tape gets tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter and, tighter and, and then it snaps. It doesn't break. It comes off the guy's backpack and it comes straight back and hits me right in the middle of the forehead and it goes whack and then it bounces over the back of my head and over behind me. So now it looks like I crossed the police tape and the second it happens the guy who just yelled at us to not go under the police tape turns around and sees guess who standing on the wrong side of the police tape and holy hell breaks out. I mean, I hadn't been chewed out like that since my father in like when I got arrested the first time or maybe the second time or maybe the third time. I can't remember. Anyway, you know, after the first time you get arrested and you get chewed out, the second and third times, are really not that bad. That's so being a, my the, the moral is being a repeat offender is totally fine. But this guy turns around and the bad part is I'm not alone. There's all the rest of the media and like civilians and hanger-oners that love to come out when someone's about to die and they all huddle around. And now the entire rage of the Phoenix Police Department, maybe it was Tempe, is on me. And he's just dressing me down like, how dare you, you moron, blah, 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 blah. And it was horrible. And then they shot the guy in the head, if I remember correctly, and I didn't get any pictures at all. So moral of the story, um, if you see that, police tape, you may want to skirt it. And there's no reason to use a 300 F2. And um, and that's it. And if you're thinking you're going to be a professional newspaper photographer, you may want to rethink your decision making skills. So that in a nutshell is for what it's worth this week. I hope that was enjoyable. And uh, I will be back soon with another episode.